Pick it up with me, if you would, please, in verse 7. And this is for context. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written that God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should see and ears that should that they should not hear to this very day. Should not see, not hear. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and they're bowed on their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are in my flesh that I may save some. And then we pick it up today in verse 15. For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruits is holy, The lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so also are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them then became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, well said. Because of unbelief they were broken, and if you stand by faith, do not be haughty, but fear. They were broken off. For God, if he did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but on you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were once cut out of an olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and so all Israel will be saved." As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet you have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have been and now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, may, shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to a disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Who has given to him that it should be repaid to him? For of him and through him 
and to Him are all things, whom be the glory, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Lord God, again, just cause your scripture to speak to every one of us individually as well as corporately now. And Lord, as we seek to know you better, as we seek to love you more, take this time and just speak fluent us that we could understand what it is you wish to address in this time. And thank you for the privilege that we've had to go through this beautiful book of Romans. Don't let us misinterpret Don't let us miss see. The author of this book dwells with inside the believer, Lord, and I pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the author, speak volumes to us tonight where we need to hear. Keep me clear and concise, Lord, that nothing be said but what need be, that for tonight we would truly bask in your presence and learn and grow from you. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for the honor of tonight. Oh, Lord, may we have so much fun and may your word just burst open and and just come alive before us. Just color in the black and white now, I pray. Cause us to live and understand this better in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so, or for that matter, anyone. I don't care what they call themselves, whether they have a PhD in nonsense or whether they are somebody off the street that can wave their hand and people fall over and cluck like chickens. In the end of it all, search everything that anyone does by the Word of God and prove it right or wrong from such. Now, in our text, in chapters 9 through 11, they tend to be a banner. They tend to be sort of the staunch Fortress for some who really want to grab a hold of the concept of God being sovereign. Now understand, Scripture makes very clear that God is in control, that God is sovereign. Scripture also makes clear that man has a a free will, an agency of choice. Scripture tells us who has resisted his will, and yet you get to the Gospel of Luke, and we read that the Pharisees, for instance, and the scribes, rejected the will of God for themselves, refusing to be baptized by John the Baptist. Clearly, there were those who reject his will. The problem is not in believing either side of that. The problem is negating the other. And that is where, and if you'll pardon me for saying, pride steps in. Somewhere down the line, we looked at two sides and we thought, though there have been great minds throughout history that have tried to figure this out, I'm going to be the one that figures it out. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm just going to figure out, I'm going to try to shove and and twist and bend so somehow the scriptures that seem the opposite don't mean what they look like they say. The problem is that we always do that at the expense of a scripture. And here's the problem, is that somewhere down the line we remove ourselves from what Jesus told us or what the Word told us back in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When it told us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not upon our own understanding. Please hear me in this. Because this is the problem. Is that if we really looked at scripture as honestly as we could, what we'd come to is conclusions that are bigger than we can understand. Honestly. So when someone says, for instance, well, how can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me thus? And you'd say, well, God makes a person a certain way. And for that, I'd say, clearly that scripture says that. I can't argue that. 
Well, then God must make you in a way that you could say no to him. Well, he can make you in a way that, but he holds you responsible for that choice nonetheless. And still tells us in over 123 different ways that we should make a choice for him. Every time you read the word believe, it is in the active tense. In other words, it is something you are actually the impetus to make the choice. It isn't thrust upon you that somehow you're just going to be predestined to that choice. It tells us somehow in this that you have a free agency to make that choice. Now, the question isn't whether those texts are what they say. The question is when the person says, well, how do you reconcile the two? What do you do with that? And here's the beautiful thing. God never told me I had to. When I can look at a scripture and say, this is what the scripture says, I have to be honest and encouraging myself and all of us to just believe what the Bible says. And it doesn't matter how much a person is sound smart, no matter how many glasses he wears and how many letters before or after his name, and whether he speaks so astute that most of the words he speaks can't be understood either by virtue of his inability to articulate or by the virtue that he uses these long, you know, eloquent words and he sounds so brilliant in them. But in the end of it all, if you just read the scripture, what would it say? Please hear me, because I'm a strong believer in this. And there are some that would preach the completely the opposite that would say what you need is all the years of history and all of these books of commentaries and all these things and I think whatever happened to the people before those commentaries were written what about the person who can't get those commentaries what about the person who can't get that history and please understand I don't want to pick on someone else's house but understand in this house as long as we're concerned here I just want to believe what scripture says and if someone wants to call me stupid for that that's okay I don't mind that because Scripture told me that I would be called stupid for believing His Word. And so when someone starts to preach, well, actually, because of this weird mindset of what we've done with science or because of whatever this is over here, because these guys got in a think tank somewhere in a tower, we've come up with this and you have to believe, and then we have to try to shove Scripture into this thinking, there's a problem with that. And the problem is that, well, it excludes people that just read the Bible because that's all they have. Please, please hear me in this. If we are objective to Scripture, we shouldn't be afraid of any verse. And we shouldn't be afraid, dare I say, to honestly just say, I don't know. Because if you knew everything, you'd be God. So why is it we're so afraid of actually saying, I don't know, when they say, well, how do you have this and how do you have that? And the beautiful part is that God is so much bigger than my thinking, I don't need to know. Unless he shows me. And I've learned this. God never builds the 15th floor without building the first 14 first. And I've learned that there are times where people read something and they're like, I just don't get this. And I'm like, maybe that's 15th floor stuff and God's still working on the second floor with you. I get these situations where someone's brand new to scripture and they want to understand all of the end times. And I think that's great, but that's kind of 15th floor stuff. And they'll go, I don't read the Bible because I don't get it all. Could you imagine what would happen if you understood everything that the Bible said? Your brains would explode out of your head. Even when we are going through a situation, we go, I just want to know why God's doing this to me. And in that situation, as if God would have explained to you every purpose that he has behind any one action, do you really ever think God ever does any one thing for any one reason? If God's running the entire universe the perfect and ultimate multitasker. And you just want to know, how God clearly must have done that one thing specifically for you and for no one else. He loves you. 
And if you were the only one, he still would have sent Jesus. But please hear me. God knows how to get everything that he needs to get, the farthest bang for buck that anyone could possibly get, because he's just that smart. Now, if I read chapters 9 through 11 objectively, without trying to defend a purpose or a cause on any other side of it, the simplest truth behind it is this. There is this nation Israel. And this nation Israel, in their mission, has been set aside for a purpose in time. However, they're still being used in this time, but not for the mission God had initially set. The mission that God initially set was for them to be a light to the Gentiles. That's clear. But God has set them aside in that mission because clearly during this time, God himself has come down to Jesus to pay the price for our sins and then calls the church to be out there to go into world, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's clearly the mission. Now, before we start getting all hoity-toity about it, we need to be honest to say, I don't believe the church is doing any greater job than Israel did before when it was their turn. So there's no route that we could possibly say that somehow God chose the better player on the team. But please hear me in this. In God setting them aside, the issue is, has he, number one, has he set them aside permanently? And the answer clearly is no. By the end of this chapter, we read that all Israel will be saved. Now, not everyone that calls himself Israel is Israel. But what we read, starting in our text here, is that our God is a restoring God. Now, please hear me. If I'm reading this carefully, and I'm trying to read this just objectively, when I get through those three chapters, this is what I got. God's used blindness. God's used hardening. God's raised up people that hate him. God's used all kinds of tools. He's shown mercy to people. And in every bit of that, you know what he gets out of it? Gentiles get saved. Jews get saved. Gentiles get saved. Jews get saved. That's what he gets out of it. So when you say, well, God hardens for the purpose of sending somebody to hell, I have a real problem with that only because I can't see that in the text. What I do see is he hardens so that in the end of it all, he can restore. He shows mercy so that in the end of it all, he can restore. He blinds so that in the end of it all, he can restore. And you go, well, how can that be? I don't understand that. And I'd say, did you have to? What scripture says is that he's going to restore and he knows how to graft back in that which he pulled out. And he says, what will it be like if right now they're being broken off is, rest or is, is reconciliation for the Gentiles? How, what, how much greater will it be when that branch gets back in there? You get the idea that's already on God's agenda. And I get this idea. Now, please hear me. If that isn't the case, we've got a really dangerous and nefarious ground we stand on because you get that idea that if I break it a little bit and I do something stupid, God could easily go, I'm so done with you, you're over. And yet what we read in here is the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Do you know what that means? God is not the kind of person that gives and takes back. Isn't that that great? Now listen, when God gives you something, He already knows the stupid things you're going to do with it. He already knows the struggles you and I are going to go through in the middle of all that. He already knows the times when we'll take the credit for what He's given us, even though we don't deserve it. He knows all of that. Somewhere down the line, it's almost as if God, we think God's going to get informed to this horrible situation we put ourselves in, and God, they go, oh, what was I ever thinking? And we surprise him, and he goes, oh, never mind, I changed my mind. God knew all of that. God knew when he took the people out of, out of Egypt that only two of them were going to make it into the promised land. He knew that. But he did it anyways. Please, please hear me. We just read the Bible, honestly. 
we would really, to be honest, spend 90% of the time that we do debating, not debating, but worshiping instead. We don't need experts. And I'm, pardon me for saying that because I'm not an expert. I don't want to be an expert in anything but my God. And I wouldn't want anyone to call himself a theologist or a theologian or any of that that knows all of God's stats but doesn't know him personally. That's not for me to tell who is who. But I'd be honest. I would give me, give me 15 hours with any one of you who knows Jesus personally. And I'll take 15 minutes with any of you for that over 15 years with somebody who thinks they know all the stats. And wants to compare him to all these other things. Please, please hear me in this. So when somebody comes in and they start playing that game of saying, well, science has shown, look at, can I just, can I dare say, and look at, I, I don't mean to offend anyone, I mean to offend everyone. Uh, that includes me. Look at, please hear me. And someone comes in and says, I'm an expert in this because somewhere down the line, I saw a textbook of, of, of a diagram that somebody drew when somebody wrote that, somebody that I've never met over an area I've never been to with experts that call themselves, well, just be careful. Because what happens then is we bend scripture and we do exactly what the cults do. And what the cults do is somewhere down the line they read the scripture and say, well, if you really need to understand it, you need our periodical, our teacher, our changes, our revisions, our whatevers. How are we any different? In our text, let's just be honest to get what the scripture says. In verse 15 it says, if they're being cast away, and we've already read, you know, we would have God cast them away permanently? No, he hasn't. Has God t- totally removed the nation of Israel? Paul's like, hello, I'm a Jew. How does that work? So all of those things, the conclusions we want to go with, that God says, you took one step east, and we said, God wants us all in China. And what happens in the end of it all is we start fishing for whales in a goldfish bowl. If, if they're being cast away is but reconciling to the world, what will their acceptance be? And notice it isn't like, what might their acceptance be hypothetically? He's going, what will it be? Because it's slated, but life from the dead. Now, what I want to get from this is more than just theological points. What I want to get are things that change my actions and my thinking so that my lifestyle changes. Does that make sense? I want to know my God better and not just some point better. And there's some simple points we can get out of this that should change my behavior and yours too. Now the first is quite simple in this. The one is, is that my God is a restoring God. And the best part about this is, is that my God is a restoring God that can even restore, listen, 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 can even restore what is dead. Do you get that? And I love this. Having done marriage counseling, and I mean that from the perspective of the one issuing it, uh, for over 20 years, you sit with couples often that look and just go, our marriage is dead. And I think, awesome. And they're like, why is it awesome? I'm like, because you've come to the one place where, the, where death doesn't intimidate. So what they say is, well, our marriage has been dead for a long time, and by now it stinketh. Like John 11. And I say, well, let's roll away the stone and let's call this thing out. And we tell God, no, God, you have to do this on this time, by this date, by this moment. If not, this is my deadline. We use terms like that, right? It's my deadline. Because if not, I'm dead. I'm dead. The thing's dead. My issue's dead. Whatever, it's dead. And then God says, look at, look at. I'm not intimidated by that because death doesn't scare me. 
Jesus is like, I took you to death. Have I not shown you already that death doesn't scare me and it doesn't own me? Death is a corridor for which God can take nothing and make the universe. He certainly can take a dead thing and make it living because he's the God of life. Of all the seven I am statements that Jesus makes, what's the one thing he says the most? I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. You get the life part? Life, life, life? Don't miss that. And God says, look it, here's the situation. And he uses a metaphor that to this day we can be, that can be used. Imagine if God used a computer metaphor, how hard that would have been to grasp 2,000 years ago. So it's like God just like hitting control alt delete. You imagine what that, people would be like, uh, what's that in the original language? Oh, we speak the original language. I don't know what that means. But God knew he could use certain things that even to this day we still plant things, strange as that is. And what a, what a beautiful place for it. I just spent two beautiful days driving, well not driving, that's the beauty, is in a train on the way up and down to Wales and back. It's a beautiful English countryside filled with all kinds of wonderful things and some scary smells. And, and I love watching all this stuff grow. The beauty in this country is we really love to grow stuff here. And look at that. And, and we, you get to watch these places and it's like, you know, the house is like, you know, it's 99% of the entire lot. And in the back there's this little area and it's about the size of this much of the pew. And you could bet there are going to be something that's planted and growing there. You just know it. And if not, we'll hang it from our windows. We'll put it next to our mailbox. We'll do whatever we can. We want to make sure there's a flower growing on our house if any way possible. We'll stick it in our gutters if we have to. Isn't it true? God knew that that would be the way we are. And to be honest, here it's like one thing. It's like, whoa, if you have nothing else to do, let's garden. I've learned this. And God says, look, here's the simple truth of it. Let's take two trees. One tree was an, what appears to be a very intentional tree. Now, the difference between a wild tree and a not wild tree, does anyone know what the difference is? One grew where you expected it to. Does that make sense? Wild flowers grow where you didn't think you planted them. That's the idea. It's like, pardon me, like saying it's like getting older and where hair starts to grow. That's wild hair now. It's like, what do you mean ears? What do you mean nose? That's weird. And then back in the, back in the day, back in the day, it used to grow on our heads. And then like gravity pulled it down into like here. And we got wildflowers growing out of the rest of our face. But understand, there's a tree that was planted. It was planted and it was planted and you expected it to grow. That means the ground was cleared. That means the ground was tilled. And there was a tree and you knew right here in this little square right here, there's going to be a tree and there's going to be a tree grown there and it's an olive tree. And olive trees are amazing. They live over a thousand years and they produce fruit. And they're super messy. They take so much effort. I don't know if you've ever really spent any time with them. They're awesome. I, the, the last band I was in, we had a drummer. That usually happens with bands. And drummers have their own... They, they dance to the rhythm of their own drum, clearly. And I tell you, usually it's like, it's, it's like you need a translator sometimes. And I love our drummers. But this was a classic example. We were in Italy on one of these trips, and we were actually there in October, which is the end of the olive season. And the guy that had taken us out took us out to go pick olives so that we can go and make our own olive oil. It's a pretty awesome thing. Now, they tell you these are the branches you go on. Don't go on those branches and to go beyond this point. Now, you know which word the, the drummer misses, right? The word not, right? It's like, so it's just like, what he hears is, okay, go up that far then and go up beyond this point. So when he goes to one thing and the branch comes down, he thinks, wow, that was really a strange occurrence. Let's try that on the next branch. 
You know, it's amazing the guy's still alive. I mean, after the second one, it's amazing we didn't beat him to death with the branches. Now, interestingly enough, though, when that branch, those trees, by the way, they were all, I mean, they were in this row. When you saw it, it was a very planned, organized thing. They were not wild trees. These were careful planted trees. What was interesting, because as these branches fell, I mean, and these branches were like as big as Jeffrey's like hips, you know, and, and they're like just big things. It's like one of the guys that was with us was a landscaper, and Jack, and so what he would do is he went and he took this thing and he kind of fastened it on and he roped and taped the whole thing on. Strangely enough, the thing grew back. This huge, big branch that was, that was about probably four or five meters long was stuck back on the tree and it actually got back on the tree. It was the most amazing thing. Now, it didn't happen right away. We just had the privilege of going back year after year to notice this. But get the idea, there are these trees and they grew and they're like, there they are, I expect them, hey, just watch out, there's this olive tree and it's going to grow here. And then you, what happens is there's like, whoa, where'd you come from? And then there's this wild olive tree on this side. And what happens with this particular tree, and God makes clear, Jesus taught us in John 15, verses 1 and 2. He taught us that I'm the vine and the Father's the vine dresser. And every branch that doesn't bear fruit, I, he prunes. Because he loves the tree and he wants it to produce fruit. And so, as he cuts off these particular branches, is something really strange happened. As he noticed that this one, and this is fairly common even to this day, happens a lot with oranges, if you know, is that sometimes what they'll do is they'll find out that this one's really sour and this one's too sweet, this one's too sour, and they'll break off branches and put them and they kind of meld together. And they kind of do this cross thing that, that really makes the, the fruit a lot better. Now, I don't know a lot of that. I'm a city boy, but it's kind of cool how the whole thing plays out. So all of a sudden, branches were broken off of this wild tree and they were stuck onto this cultivated tree. Now, all of a sudden, you went from going, oh, how did you get here? To, whoa, you're exactly in my plan. And that's the idea here. But while that happens, there's this branch still sitting down there. And as that branch is still sitting down there, this branch can look, and this is the branch we are if you're a Gentile, and looks and go, ha, 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 you fell off, you used to be on this, you used to be on this, check me out. You know, and, and it got this, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know, I cut that thing off, what do you think, somehow I don't have a problem cutting you off? And there's the issue here. He goes, but you need to understand that from the very beginning, when God cut this thing off, he already has a plan to stick it back on. That's the cool part of this. So there's going to be this place where all of a sudden he's going to trim, but in order to stick it back on, he's going to have to cut some of that tree, stick that thing back on, so it'll be fresh again. Now understand, the plan from the very beginning was restoration. Do you get that? But though the plan was restoration, part of the plan in the restoration was to cut off first before he restored. That's a crazy thought. Because that seems so opposite until you get to the book of 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, and again, don't just believe me, I'm going to give you some text and challenge you to look at it on your own. In 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, there's some pretty rough things going on in the church. Basically, by the way, the first six chapters are all about three really clear symptoms to one cause for a problem church. That particular problem. And the church was, the prognosis, the diagnosis is the church was carnal. He never says they're not saved. He never says you're probably going to hell. But what he does say is, oh, y'all messed up. You've turned this church into a three-ring circus. 
And here are the three rings. The first ring is, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm an Anglican, I'm a Calvary chaplain, whatever in the world that is, whatever. I'm non-denominational. I'm big on not knowing what I am, but I'm something. And this is where we're at here. That's the first group. And he says, you know what that is? That's carnal. You guys are acting like unbelievers. Second group, by the way, over here, you guys are so, here's the crazy thing, you guys will tolerate sin, but not tolerate personality. Which is the opposite of what God called us to do in church. He gives us crazy personalities so we can show what it's like to love each other when nobody else should. And you watch people that are so opposite of each other hang out and enjoy each other and people go, that must be God. Can I just tell you, there's a book out called Irreconcilable Differences, Grounds for a Perfect Marriage. And I'd say from the beginning when Susan and I were married and when we used to take those tests people would do, people were like, you guys are doomed. We were opposite in, like, every way. You know, it's like, I like it cold, she likes it warm. I mean, it doesn't really matter what it was. You know, she bakes pies, I like spicy. You just, you know, and the beautiful part about it is, is that what God has done with us is so beautiful because it's only what the Lord can do. Now, the crazy part is, is that the more opposite a personality is in the world, the more we would tend to think, you're going to be in a group, I'm going to be in another group, in the opposite side of the church. But what God says is, we're actually supposed to be one, and that's the beauty of it. So what happens is, older people hang with younger people, darker skin hang with lighter skin, super quote-unquote educated people, hang on with people that quit school early. I mean, people that have like, that just seem like they were born singing praise songs, hang on with people that used to arm rob. And the whole point of that is, is that we're so cool and eclectic and motley and twisted and eccentric that what happens is the world can't wrap their head around this. Do you get it? That's the way God intended it. It isn't like, let's get all of you who used to be drug addicts up here so we can keep our eyes on you and our wallets. Let's get all of you who actually, um, you know, used, grew up singing praise songs. Let's get you up here so we can make sure we can hear you sing. Let's get, no, that is stupid to me. That just sounds insane. And let's make sure we have the Asian Christians and the Spanish Christians and the black Christians and the white Christians and the, why? So the world can see that we do what they do? And he goes, that's carnal. You got that from the world. You didn't get it from Jesus. And you look at those guys that were Jesus' disciples, and you've got to scratch your head and go, did he really know what he was doing? He stayed up all night praying. And then you thought, maybe that all-nighter could be rough to make decisions by the morning. Or is it really that he knew? Now understand, one guy's a zealot. Do you know what a zealot is? A zealot's a guy who's so busy trying to prove, by the way, Simon, we also read, was a Canaanite, so more than likely he wasn't born Jewish. But he's just like a lot of people who weren't born Jewish but really want to prove they're Jewish now. They go way overboard. Have you noticed that? And so what happens is they're like, look, let's kill the Roman. Let's kill anything that's against Jewish people. Everything's anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic. Oh, you hate Israel. I mean, they're just they're finding it in every bush. And you know what we need to do? We need to kill anybody who's against Israel. Okay, no one could a zealot hate more than a tax collector. Because a tax collector was a Jew who walked away from being Jewish to go and betray the Jewish people to collect money for the Romans. And Jesus had one of each in his twelve. Find that one out. But we never read that Matthew and Simon were at each other's throats. That's strange to me. You have guys like Peter, and I would think, who's opposite of Peter? Anybody sane? Anybody tactful? Anybody refined? I think how strange would that be? you got the sons of thunder, who, by the way, want to call fire down on an entire Samaritan city, and you think, these are the people he chose. 
And the Corinthian church now has, this is their Portuguese section. This is their, these are people are of Apollos. You know what I mean? Because Paulus was a really gifted speaker. He sounded so smart. So basically, here's the section for people who are educated Christian, and here's the section for the people who are not so educated Christian. That was the second problem. They were suing each other because they couldn't tolerate each other. And then here's the crazy thing, is that they were also tolerating sin. And now this gets us to our point. There's a guy, and if we just read the text, listen, it says, a man has his father's wife. Okay, there's two options, right? That's mom or that's stepmom. But one conclusion, that's gross. Isn't that just a simple conclusion in it? Now, we don't like to think of it. And people go, well, maybe it means... I, I, I think God put it simple because it's just simply gross. And this is what God said through Paul. He said, kick the man out of the church. Here's the most amazing thing. He didn't say that the issue was that this man was sinning. He said, but the most amazing thing is you guys are proud of it. You guys are like, check out how tolerant of a church we are. We even allow mommophiles in our fellowship. And listen, but please hear me before you flip on this. His intention was not, just like our text, was not to kick a man out permanently. In that chapter, chapter 6, he says, hand the man over to Satan that his body would be burned, but his soul would be spared. Interesting, because by the time you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he tells us that the man has been restored. The man has come back repentant, and now he says you should forgive that man, you should reaffirm your love for that man, and you should comfort that man. You know why? Because when a guy does something like that and then comes to and realizes how stupid that is, the last place he wants to go back to is the church he left. Doesn't he? True story. You too. You do something really stupid and you know part of any one person in the church, you knew that happened. You do not want to come back here. So what happens is the church reaches out. Listen, listen, listen. The church reaches out to reaffirm their love. The church reaches out to comfort. The church reaches out to forgive. You know why? Because that's what our God did. So that person says, look at you know, you need to know this. There's a place here for you. The ironic thing is, we tell people when we try to share the Lord with them that God forgives and he's patient with us and we don't have to be perfect. And then we're imperfect in front of them and we say, I blew my witness, I could never be in front of them again. And you're thinking, how, how can that be? You just told them that God forgives, that you don't have to be perfect and that he's patient and now you have an opportunity to display it. Now don't go sinning to set that up. It'll happen naturally. But the crazy part is, is then what happens is the enemy loves to isolate you. Hear the difference between conviction, which is the Holy Spirit, and condemnation, which is the enemy. Both at the end of a, of a sin will tell you that was wrong. The enemy tells you to leave God. The Holy Spirit says, get it taken care of. Go back and t- get this taken care of. Go back to the cross. Now please hear me. In this text, God broke off this branch because he has a plan to stick it back on again. That's the point. And what he'd really, really like is strangely enough, don't miss this, this is the first time in Scripture we get to be the older brother in the prodigal son story. Do you remember that? 
Because in the prodigal son story, remember how the younger brother took dad's inheritance and bolted off? By the way, if you read the story, and by the way, for what it's worth, it's in Luke 15, when it says, it says the father gave them their inheritance. Understand, he didn't just give the younger son, he gave both of them their inheritance. Check it on your own. Don't believe me? Check it. The younger brother goes and he goes and he runs off and he spends it on prostitutes. He spends it on drugs. He is raving. He's in the party scene. He's Mr. Popular right now because he's renting the really nice limo. He's looking sharp. He's got really nice clothes. And there are friends that are there as long as the money is. And you know the story. When he comes back, because sooner or later that money's going to run out because it doesn't last forever, and he comes back shoeless because he even had to sell his shoes. But if you've ever been a crack addict, you know how that works. Shoes are a valuable thing to sell. You got, I got some trainers. I think I could get something out of this. This is a hit. He comes back barefoot, no pride, and he at this point he would be happy to eat the swine food. And I can tell you what, Jager bombs are swine food. Living off of happy hour food is swine food. Living off of ridiculous false philosophies, telling you that sin is okay when God's okay with it, is swine food. But the Father's got better for you. He's got a fatted calf. And that boy comes back. And when that boy comes back, everybody's happy but one person. Do you remember that? And the person who wasn't happy was the older brother. Because he's like, hey, 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 hey. And don't miss this. He says, listen, listen. I have been with you this whole time. I've served you. And you've never, ever even given me a goat. Listen, listen, for me and my friends. And this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother. This son of yours comes back and you killed a fatted calf. Now listen to the difference. When the fatted calf was killed, do you know who the son ate it with? The father. If the father would have given that older son a goat, well, who would have eaten it with? Who would he have eaten it with? His friends. Do you, miss, do you see what I'm saying? And in the story, the older brother, let's be honest, jerk played by older brother. And the context of that was, is you have a bunch of Jewish leaders that were really unhappy because tax collectors, drug addicts, and prostitutes were coming to church. Okay, we can agree. Bad guy played. Do you realize we can be the bad guy now? Because now we're the ones that are grafted in, and we're looking at this branch God's going to bring in. Let me go, ha, 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 brother of mine. But aren't we then playing the role of the jerk? Shouldn't our hearts be broken over the empty chair that our father weeps over at the dinner table that used to be a son that he used to put his arms around? Now please hear me. This has to go to practice or all it is is a mindset that doesn't make a difference. But no mindset that God gives it's supposed to be just something you entertain intellectually. Otherwise, it's like playing Xbox in your head. Even if you get a high score, it doesn't go anywhere. Please hear me. Is your God a reconciling God like this one? Are you an ambassador of this God? Listen. Romans 5.10 says this. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by His life? But not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we receive this reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, same chapter, 
Verse 18, he says this now. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. We're good with that, right? Being reconciled to God. But listen to this. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Oh, you're an ambassador, beloved. Hey, who's out there right now eating swine food? Or craving it, but not even getting it. Who's out there right now still trying to figure out how? And here's the scary part. It's like drinking salt water. The more you have, the more you feel like you have because it doesn't satisfy. It makes it worse. And here's the most amazing lie amidst amidst it all. You were satisfied in Christ. You went somewhere else to try to do it. And here, can I just warn you, in a lonely country like this, in a lonely city like this, relationships are one of those pitfalls. Now, I'm not telling you don't get in a relationship. I'm telling you don't get in a bad relationship. And I'm telling you this. Don't ever think that a relationship other than Jesus Christ is supposed to complete you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus completes you. Jesus completes you. Jesus completes you. When you enter in a relationship not thinking Jesus completes you, you know what will happen? You will suck from someone what they're not allowed to give you because they don't have it. And you'll be disenchanted and you'll be all angry and going, oh, you're supposed to complete me and I don't understand. And you try harder and harder and you try to control more. You try to bend more and you try to demand more and you can't get in and the person gets so fed up because they can't give it. And the reason is because they don't have it to give. Do you know anyone that's like that? We left praise for a few beers. And now we're drinking so much because it didn't satisfy us. So I thought, maybe a few more beers. Maybe a lot of beers. Maybe some vodka. Let's do some tequila shots. Let's go out. And and all of a sudden, we went from finding satisfaction in Christ to trying to find it somewhere else. And if you don't believe me, read the story of Solomon. A man, by the way, who at the beginning wrote Proverbs where it's just like he's so in love with God, he finds purpose in an ant. He sees a snake and he goes, well, I can learn from that. He sees the, have you ever seen a coney? These things are awesome in Israel. And by the way, pray, because my prayer is 12 people. Can I just say that? 12 people who want to come that can pay for it. And we're going. They hang over the edge of these cliffs called rock badgers, conies. And he goes, that's just the coolest thing ever. Now, if you've ever had a simple faith in the Lord, and I pray you do, it's like that. You see cool little things and they just blow your mind. Please hear me. Yeah, gosh, it was yesterday. We are in, we took this bus, the 118, from Swansea to this uh, place called Rosilly. I just remember the last part was silly. And um, it was like a 45-minute trip, and you could tell the moment you got into Gower because it was like houses, 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 green. Right? It's just all green. And we finally get to this place, and it's like, who, you know, how could something not be beautiful called Worm's Head? Right? And so, you, know, you take this hike and all of this, and we finally get down to the beach area, and they tell you about this sunken ship that's almost all completely covered in sand now. Um, and, and I get out to the beach, and, and, and please understand, coming from California, I used to just take these walks, and I'd take these beautiful little walks with the Lord. 
And, and, and I would always kind of, it's just, they were checkups. And they would do them every day. I'd walk on the beach and, just, and I would talk out loud because you can't hear a guy talk out loud. And now I just put on earphones so that you think I'm talking on the phone. But uh, I'm like, all right, Lord, how are we? Doing okay? And, and I'm, I'm walking and I'm like, Lord, I don't know why, but I just really feel this desire right now for you just to, could you just show me something? And I'm not normally one of those kind of guys, but I just had that in my heart. You ever have moments like that? Like, Lord, I just really love to see something. And can I just say this? In the area that we were before that, one of the things I tend to look for is beauty, if that makes any sense. Like if you just see an, an adult treating a child well, or you see a teacher being kind to somebody, or you see someone care for someone, it's like I just want to find beauty in any culture that I walk in. It's like show me something that's just beautiful. And I wasn't seeing it anywhere, at least where I was. I saw a lot of people on crack. I saw a lot of very desperate situations and I saw some really rough situations. And I was like, oh God, please, please, please show me something beautiful. So here I am now. I'm walking and I'm like, Lord, could you just show me something? And as I'm standing there on this beach, I look down and there's this jellyfish. Beautiful, gorgeous jellyfish. It's about this big, like roughly the size of the small, like the NCAA basketball purple in the middle, clear on the outside, and just swimming me, and I would never have noticed it, and then I not just stood there and waited for the water to settle. Does that make sense? Because when the tide kind of comes in, the sand kind of churns, and you don't see anything. And the Lord is clear as this, because Tony, I just want to remind you, when you don't feel me, I'm there. I know you know it. When you can't see me, I'm there. And I just thought I'd show you this to tell you. And I was like, oh, God, I'm serious. Tears in my eyes, and of course I'm saying it's the wind. You know, and I, oh, God, you are just so good. I just love those moments when he does that kind of thing. And I just can't help but think, oh, Lord, you know how to do this. You know how to show at the moments you want to show. You know how to reveal at the moments you want to reveal. And I think about our text, beloved. And I look back at this, and there's this situation where I'm not seeing God at work, and I don't have to. All I know is this, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, and in that, whether we see it or not, he's at work, and he knows how to show what he wants to show when he wants to show it. And please hear me. God knows this, that every bit of his plan is to reconcile. Now please hear me. If... That was my life or yours, and we're almost closed here. If that was your life and that was mine today, I guarantee you we would be driven by a different modus operandum in the way that we view things. You know, there are some that say, I go out and smoke cigars with guys because all things to all men. I go out and have a few beers with the guys because we're all things to all men. And I'm like, wait a minute. Scripture says, to the weak I became weak. And weak conscience, by the way, means you don't touch anything. That means you didn't eat meat in front of those people because you would break their conscience. That's what that meant. And he goes, I did that, that I might save some. To those who had freedoms, I experienced those freedoms that I might save some. If I were driven by God's heart, every decision I made would be for the purpose of seeing somebody reconciled to God or seeing somebody further reconciled to God. Does that make sense? And all of a sudden, in any freedom I think I want to give myself would only be for the purpose of getting to someone. And what that, meant, what that means is, crazy as it is, is that if I was up somewhere near, if I, if I was up somewhere near Archway, I might put on an Arsenal jersey to go and meet with some people there. But if I'm down in Chelsea, I wouldn't wear it. And it's like, well, that sounds like you're a two-timer. All that means, see, we wouldn't even think that way, but we would think that way in regards to these freedoms we think we should be so, you know, exerting ourselves into. Please hear me. 
In this, it says he's given us the ministry of acceptance, and it says of reconciliation. Verse 16 says that the first root of the lump is holy. The root is also holy. And this is my last thing, and we'll go into prayer after this. God is a fruitful God. He's not only a restorative God, he's a fruitful God. And he knows how to bring it back in. And you say, well, branches are broken off. And God says, that's to make fruitful. But I'm going to restore it and it's going to be even... Look at if you were put into this branch and it was fruitful, what happens when he adds a second branch into it that was already natural to the tree? Wouldn't it be more fruitful? Please hear me in this. God may cut something out of your life permanently because it'll never bear fruit. And you could think, but this is so close. And God goes, no, it's not. I'm shaving it off. And you could fight him and argue with him all you want. But in the end of it all, God is balanced. He knows how to be stern. And he also knows how to be good. That's verse 22. Consider the goodness and the severity of God. But there are other things he may cut off and he'll put back later because later on it's a better time for it. And because God knows when it's going to be fruitful. He may cut you out of something and you think, this is, I belong here. And you're like, whoa, I've watched this with dancers. I've watched this with people in education. I've watched this with athletes where all of a sudden an injury takes them out. And all of a sudden they're like, my whole life was dance. And God says, that's why I'm taking you out. Because that's not fruitful. When your whole life is the Lord, it's a different story. You're in a relationship and God pulls apart that relationship. And you go, but that man was my life or that girl was my life. And God goes, that's the problem. That's not fruitful. He goes, but what I'd rather is attach you to me where you belong. And then I can bring it back if it's going to be fruitful. If it's not ever going to be fruitful, why would you want it anyways? A branch that never bears fruit. You know what that is? It's just a sucker. That's all it is. It sucks from you and it keeps the fruit that would be born from being sweet. So therefore... All is real in the end of it all. He goes, I'm saying this so you don't be wise with your own opinion. Verse 26... But God is going to save Israel, verse, 20, uh, verse 25, verse 26 says that. Isaiah 59, 20 and 21 is what he quotes. Because removal is imperative, but restoration is also part of the plan. And he says, right now, in this removed state, they're your enemies, but they're still beloved. Don't you ever doubt for a moment that God stopped loving that branch because it's cut off of him. Don't you ever stop. Listen, listen, listen. Don't you ever stop believing that God loves that branch just because it's not with him right now. So some guy was walking with the Lord and decided to walk away from it for some form of lifestyle that they know God doesn't approve of. We can all do it. Guys will do it because they want to go out and have sex with other women. They want to have sex with a, a married woman. They want to have sex with another man. And all of that, we want to separate and segregate into categories. But in the end of it all, people walk away from the Lord and then they want to write articles about how the church is not doing them a favor. But they don't want God the way that God is in the first place. And in all of that, we can look and go, well, God doesn't love them anymore. That's nonsense. Just because they're cut off for the moment. And God says, look it, I want you to cut off because I want you to wither and I want you to be miserable. Because please hear me, because God wants you miserable without him. And here's the crazy thing. We could try to make someone like that less miserable, but do it at the expense of the Lord versus saying, look, at, there's still a father with a robe and a ring and a fatted calf, but you've got to come home. And sometimes we could co-sign to someone's sin instead of encouraging them to come back to church. And I have no one in mind to say that. But God will tell us who that is for each of us. So it says in verse 32, he's committed them all to disobedience. The word committed, for what it's worth, is the word sunklao. And the word sunklao, in the simplest sense, means to embrace in a common. So God is holding all of these disobedient people together. 
Listen, listen, listen. You'd say, well, look at, there it is. God's already holding them in disobedience. Look at the rest of the verse. Verse 32 says, that he might have mercy on all. Do you get it? That's the crazy part about it. God knows how to hold you even in your disobedience because his plan is to have mercy for you. Don't miss that. Because in the end of it, all he's going to say is, look at verse 33. Oh, the depths and the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his, his ways past finding out. Who knows the mind of the Lord? That's Isaiah 40, verse 13, Jeremiah 23, 18. And who has given him counsel that it should be for, or given him anything that God should owe him? That's Job 41, 11. For... Of him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And by the way, the next verse starts with, if you have the NIV, it's the easiest way. It says, in view of his mercy. In other words, what I should have gotten out of that last three chapters is, because God's so merciful, this is what I should get out of it. It doesn't say, because God's so judgmental and he handpicked somebody to go, go to hell. But it says, God's so merciful, he will cut you off to restore you. He'll make you miserable to restore you. He will break off things in your life to restore you. Things you love or want to restore you. He will humble you to restore you. He will weaken you to restore you. You'd say, well, that sounds like Satan. And you want to blame Satan for everything. Look, at the Lord is so smart, he could even use Satan against Satan. You aware of that by now? Satan never gets past Jesus. Jesus is the gate to the sheep. It isn't like saying, check me out, check me out. Whoa, and he's passed. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, what? Oh, man, not again. But people will say, Satan was down on my doorstep. He was out on my bed. He's beating me on the head. Saying, that's something I'm beating me. Oh, look, excuse me. But if you're in the gate to the sheep, and you're in the right sheepfold, there's no place safer. Oh, the enemy can still roar. He can still suggest. But he'll say, come on out. You're like, no, I'm fine right here. I'm fine right here. Please hear me as we pray, beloved. Please hear me. This amazing chapter should conclude once and for all. God will do what it takes. If there is a way to restore you, he will do it. And he doesn't care if it causes you pain because he plays for keeps. And if what this is in the end of it all is to make you a little uncomfortable so you'll finally crawl into his lap, that's just fine with him. Because he just wants you. Nothing, nothing, nothing is more important to God than your relationship with Him. And it tells us that even trials have come that our faith, that is greater value than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, would be proven genuine. He'll stick you in a trial to purify your faith so you'll trust Him, not your prayers, not the church, not the pastor, not your good works. Trust Him and Him alone. And if any moment you think, it will save me, it will get me, it, you're in a problem. It is not Christianity. He is Christianity. It's not it-ianity. But we can treat it that way. If I could light enough candles, burn enough incense, go to enough church services, give enough to the poor, memorize enough scriptures, it, 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 it. I light up, I pile up, piled up all my it's. God says, can we just talk? Strangest verse, listen, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God was actually pleased to hurt Jesus. Not because he liked to hurt Jesus, but he knew what he'd get for it. And if God was willing to let Jesus be tortured on the cross to get you, what's he going to let you go through to get you? 
Or you could just come with your hands up and you won't have to worry about it because that's all he wants. And anything else you want to fight him for, can I warn you, you're going to lose. And if God would send his only begotten son to die on the cross just to have you and raise again to be your Lord, shouldn't we say yes to everything Pray with me, would you please? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this amazing, beautiful text. And Lord, I know that rough things happen and we keep praying, God, remove all my burdens, make my life comfortable. And crazy enough, then we pray and we sing, make me more like you. And God says, really? It's one or the other. And I know sometimes, Lord, it's just that in our absolute love and devotion to you and abandonment to ourselves or from ourselves, it starts to happen because your Holy Spirit's just doing that beautiful work within and that can be our whole life. Or we can fight you. And fighting you, it's so dumb. Because in the end of it all, you're stronger and you're more patient and you're more stubborn even than our hearts. And so, Lord, I just pray that right now, for those of us who claim to know you, and I pray that would be everyone in this room. If anyone in this room, Lord, feels broken off or a wild branch that's never been grafted in because they've never accepted the gift of your Son, Jesus the Christ, right now convince them by your Holy Spirit. But for those who have said yes to you, and we know we have, Put upon our hearts those to whom you have right now given us the ministry of reconciliation. And Lord, for those rough situations that we that are temporary, and every one of them is temporary, we want to be angry because we don't like the discomfort and the pain they've brought. And I know there is suffering involved. There is great suffering, but never as much as your son ever experienced on the cross and beyond. Oh God, please... Make us honest. We're we're wimps. We're pansies in our face. But God, we need, we need to have a greater trust that even if we don't understand, you're still good and you're doing this to bring us closer and or others as well. Lord, I don't want to tell you make my life more comfortable and then tell you make my life more fruitful when to make it fruitful you've got to trim off things and to trim anything off of me is going to be uncomfortable. So I have to make a choice. Would I rather be fruitful or would I rather be comfortable? And God, I just pray right now. I mean, in this room it's a little easier to say it, but would you remind me I prayed this when you do the trimming? I want to be fruitful and not just some fruit but that my fruit would remain and that you said that we would bear much fruit and thus be your disciples. I pray that this would be a fruitful church not a fleshly church where we quickly let go of ourselves where it wouldn't be sectioned off to people of any sort that it would just be that every one of us are just jerks saved by grace and the rest is details. 
I pray right now you would break our hearts for those right now who should be at the table here and aren't because somehow they're busy trying to find it elsewhere. And even like Solomon, who had that amazing reverence for the little things like the jellyfish, but somehow would walk from you and wind up saying, everything is meaningless. And I know that's one of the signs, one of the clearest symptoms when somebody had walked with you and now everything seems so pointless because they're not with the one who gives anything purpose anymore. But Lord, we don't want to look and go, ha ha, you're broken off or any of that. But Lord, please give us a heart to see them grafted in. And though we can't graft them in ourselves, we could at least be ambassadors and ministers of that reconciliation to remind them. Give us wisdom, Lord, where we want to provide comfort, but a temporary comfort instead of the challenge for where they can find permanent comfort. In the God of all comfort. And right now, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you just know, man, it's just been a really, really long time that you've ever really given on a thought to what it means to surrender to the Lord for who He is. I just want to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. In the essence of it all, you are choosing Jesus now. Though he is sovereign, that choice is before you. And to say amen is you choosing Jesus. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm faulty. And I know in my faults and in my sin I stand guilty before you. But you and your perfect love for me suffered the greatest discomfort and offered the greatest sacrifice, the death of your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross for my sin, my guilt, my shame. And there, all of it was punished properly. He was buried, and three days later, just like your scripture promised, he rose again. And I declare him my Lord, my resurrected Lord, my Savior, my Ransom, my pardon, and my Lord. So here I am, I'm yours. Graft me in, make me right, and make me fruitful. As I surrender to you now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.